If you have uh, your Bible handy uh, or your device, uh, open it to Romans chapter 8. The eighth chapter of this wonderful letter written by a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. Convert to Christianity from Judaism. He was known as Saul of Tarsus before that. Wicked guy. <laughs> he spent his time going around persecuting Christians making them suffer. We're going to be looking at suffering as a child of God this morning. And uh, at this letter penned by a man who both was the cause of that in the lives of many and was the recipient of that by many. So as we look here, as we start to, to kind of dig down, uh, you know, I'd love to back up for context. And, and I've mentioned before, if you keep backing up for context in the book of Romans, you're going to end up at chapter one, verse one. But we don't have time for that. So uh, we looked last week at what it is to be sons and daughters in Romans 8, 11 to 17. So there we saw that Paul switched from instruction because he had been giving instruction on what this whole transaction is that we call sanctification, being made holy, having been made holy, been declared holy by the work of the cross at the moment of my conversion, God sees me as holy. But now, being sanctified by his life, uh, Paul's been talking about that since chapter 6. When he said, in chapter 6, he said, don't even think that your salvation results in you going back and living the same way as you used to. That's just not what God's intention is, and that will bring nothing but death in your own life. So as he switches from instruction now to exhortation, strong encouragement, uh, that's what exhortation means in, in verses 12 and 13. He states that we're debtors. He says, you are obligated now. And we've looked at that last week. Now that you have God's spirit living within you, that comes with a certain obligation. Verse 12, he leads off with telling us what we are not obligated to, and that's to serve our lower nature, to serve the flesh. We've talked about that corpse that we're chained to, that we don't go around trying to revive that thing. We don't serve that. We don't serve sin. Again, it leads to death. It produces death. But in verse 13, he lays out what that obligation is after he tells us what it's not. He says in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Not in my power, not in my strength, but it's only by the Spirit of God that we discover real power in our lives. We saw what happened in chapter 7 when Paul is just, he's just throwing his hands in the air. I picture him just being utterly frustrated when he's trying to work it out himself. He's trying to be a good person. And we discover in God's Word that it's not about being a good person. It's about being a godly person. A person within whom the Spirit of God dwells, now producing things in our lives that we're not able to, we're not capable to produce in ourselves. So in verses 14 and 15, he tells us that being led by the Spirit of God is actually proof of being a true son or daughter of God. Uh, the Spirit of God within us cries out, Abba, Father. 
Talked about that last week, that, that intimate term between me and God where he sees me as a son. He sees you as a son or as a daughter. And there's an intimate relationship there that is one-on-one. Yeah, he loves the church, but in a greater degree, he loves you. And he pursues a relationship with you. And he wants to pour out his spirit in you. And that's how he works. It's a personal thing. We stopped last week, and I'm going to back up some today. We stopped at verse 17. (laughs) I'm going to back up to verse 16. As we look at, as we begin now to look at what it is to suffer as a child of God. As I mentioned, context is everything. And my prayer, my hope is that by the end of this study, you'll see why understanding my place as God's child is absolutely critical to my understanding suffering as a Christian. I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. Yeah, we're going to gain one whole verse this week. (laughs) Uh, Let's read it together. In verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So he's saying here that there's a transaction involved here that that as we are joint heirs with Christ, we know that Christ suffered. He's saying suffering is part of it. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Wow, (laughs) there's a lot there. So we will begin looking at suffering in verse 17. But as I was preparing for this, gang, I I just felt strongly led to slow down a bit, actually back up a bit, and take a closer look at what it is to be a child of God. Absolutely essential. This is meat. You talk about things of, of, of the Spirit, things in God's Word that are milk, things that are meat. This is meat. This is something that we need to take to heart because it will shape the way that we respond to the world around us. Not if, but when suffering comes. This sets us, it sets a clear context for the inclusion of suffering as a believer. In verse 16, he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Literally, we are the offspring of God. We have been grafted into the, we've been added into the family. We've been adopted we saw last week, we, he looked at, he talked about, we haven't received the spirit of slavery again, but we've received the spirit of adoption. We have now been added to the family of God. We also looked at the fact that he says that we're no longer slaves, but we're sons, we're daughters. I talked to a lot of people, as a pastor, I talked to a lot of people, and, and I talked to people fairly often, I would call it below the surface, where you know, we share with one another. And one of the things that, it, it doesn't bother me, but, it, but it, it, it hurts my heart, is when I see people who are not walking in what God has for them to walk in. When I see people that doubt because of something in their life, and sonship is not a settled issue. And someone asked me the other day, you know, do you, do, do you really think, Pastor John, do you really think that, that God loves me the way that he talks about here? I know me. And my response is, I don't know you in those places that God does because everything is open and bare before him. And yes, he loves you. 
Yes, he has adopted you because it's not based on you. That's the essence of grace. That's the essence of a grace-filled relationship. It's based on him. It's based on his goodness. It's based on his kindness. The kindness of God being what leads someone to repentance. That's what God's word tells us. So with that is, is sonship, or and, and understand we're talking about daughtership too here. <laughs> but when we talk about that, I mean, it, it's, it's a general term, talking about humans. But is that a settled issue in your mind, in your life? The answer to this question is simple, but it's profound. Because your walk with the Lord will be substantially weakened if these things aren't in place. You understand his love for you. That father's love. I I remember, I was thinking about this. My daughter, one Father's Day, she was so excited. She was like eight years old. And and she wanted to make dad breakfast. So she went in and she dumped the flour out and she got this and she got that. Her little brother was helping. He's she's like eight and he's six. And 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 they got this whole breakfast together. And I don't know what she left out of the pancake mix, but she came into my room just beaming. She wanted to be pleasing to dad. She wanted to show her love for dad. And I took one bite out of that pancake and I went, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was like, and, and I looked at her and with all sincerity, like I said, she's eight. She's just, she's standing there all proud. And, and I just said, these are so absorbent. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and, and yet, that's the nature of the relationship in a small way, in an earthly way. That's a, that's a reflection of the relationship that God pursues with us. And it's not about us getting it right. My daughter didn't get it right. The pancakes were really absorbent because it's not based on that. It's based in love, the mutual love that we share. I love him because he loved me first. That's what God's word says, and that's really where it's at. So the answer to this question, is a sonship a settled issue in your mind or in your life? It's it's simple but profound because we will be weakened in our walk with the Lord if that's not in place. Have you, by faith, come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is that in place? Have you been born again from above by God's Holy Spirit? Have you asked him to forgive you for your sins? Changed your mind about God? Have you received his forgiveness? My point in this, folks, is that many people struggle with this. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around an accurate view of the grace of God because it's all on him. And it's what he chooses to shower us with. It's the basis of the relationship. Don't get ripped off. When I blow it, I want to get right. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're also told in Revelation chapter 10 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. We talked recently about the difference between conviction, specific, and condemnation, general, kind of blah. And the enemy would keep you under condemnation if he could. But if you're conscious of something going on in your life that you need to get right with the Lord, do it. Keep short accounts. 
with your father. Don't get ripped off because the other side of that is you will walk around with a dark cloud over your head. You'll walk around with this conviction laying on your heart and, and you won't sense his empowering in your life. The point in all of that is we all struggle, we all wrestle, don't we? Understand that you're a son. If you have transacted with Jesus on the basis of the cross, that's it, then you're a son. You're a daughter. If you're conscious of sin in your life, repent. Get right. That's a privilege. It's not, it's not something that, it, that's what he's talking about here when he says that, that we by faith now we take those things that are in our lives that are between us and God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. That's what he means in that. That's what he's indicating. There's a transaction available to us that we can be free from all of the weight that that brings. But he only does that with sons and daughters. We'll talk about uh, phony sons and daughters in a minute. But you've got to see your father's love through all of it. It's based solely on him. I want to talk about three things, pardon me, about sons and daughters. Uh, and, and, and again, I know I've slowed way down and, and I really don't apologize for it. I want this to be spirit directed, spirit led. And I believe that this is where God wants us this morning, that we come away with a better understanding, a deeper understanding of the nature of his love, of the love of our father. The first thing, these three things I want to look at, and, and we could go on. I mean, I could expand this, but I, I do want to tag these because they're important uh, as we move through the passage here in Romans, is that our Father, our Abba, is accessible. We have access to him. You know, very often when people have an, an idea of God, especially out there in an unbelieving world, if they even acknowledge his existence, they think in terms of God being this far off, omnipotent being that is impersonal and unapproachable and, 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 and is just hard. Uh, very often I deal with people who look at him through the lens of him being kind of cruel. Well, look at all the stuff that's going on in the world. It's not true. We have access to our father. In Mark chapter 15, the scene there is Jesus is hanging on the cross. And these are the things that are, are going on as he is at the very last moments of his life. And in Mark 15, 37, it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. He died. It says, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, this is Herod's temple. This is a huge temple. And the veil was probably somewhere between 45 and 60 feet high. People have different estimates. And it was up to a foot and a half thick. Let me tell you what the veil was for. In, in the temple, and prior to that, even in the tabernacle out in the wilderness, which was a portable temple that they moved around when Israel moved around, that veil was a protective device. That veil was between the holy place, which was where the priests went and ministered daily, and the holy of holies. Now, in the tabernacle, the, the Ark of the Covenant was back there. And one day, once a year, the people would, the, or the high priest would go in and he would first offer for his own sins. He would sacrifice an animal and go in and atone for his own sins. And then he would come back in after he had done that, gone through a whole different ritual and atone for the sins of the nation. 
while he's there, he had uh, this deal that they put incense in, and he would sprinkle the incense inside the Holy of Holies. The presence of God would come and hover above the lid to the mercy seat. The very presence of God. But you don't get to see that if you're just a regular Joe in the Old Testament. You don't get to see that in, in New Testament times where the tabernacle had been replaced by the temple. They still had a veil. There was this, this, this curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And it protected you from the wrath of God because God is utterly holy. And we're not. God is utterly pure. And we're not. God is He dwells in unapproachable light in that sense because sin had not yet been atoned for. So along comes Jesus. The moment that he gave up his life because he held on to it. He held on to it until it was time. The moment that he did, we're told the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The symbolism is clear. No longer would we need to be protected from God because through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, he now becomes the one that we go through to come into the presence of God. As a result, there would be a whole new way now for people to relate to God. He's not this distant being that's unapproachable. He is not this God that is exacting and, and meeting out vengeance on all of sin. And, and I mean, he is, he remains the same. Don't get me wrong, but the process through which we go through to come into his presence has completely changed. And it changed the moment that Jesus died. The veil was torn from the top down. God is saying symbolically full access, unhindered access to me is granted to any who will come by faith. That's amazing. That blows me away. The way has been torn open for us to come into his presence. Never, never since the Garden of Eden, when Adam walked with God in the cool of the day, had this been possible. From the time of the fall until Jesus breathed his last breath, man was separated from God because of his sin. And now, now we have access. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, we read, For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. A reference to Jesus fulfilling the place of the high priest in the tabernacle, in the temple. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who's that for? Sons and daughters, the offspring of God. Jesus knows your struggle. He knows your weakness. Don't let that keep you from him. Come boldly. The way is open. The second thing about being sons and daughters I want to look at here is our father delights in giving his children gifts. They're probably not going to look like what you had under the tree last year. Thank God. But in Luke eleven thirteen, we read this. He says, if you then, and Jesus is talking here, uh, this is the son talking about the father giving the spirit. I mean, all three are right here in this verse. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. 
how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What he's saying here, if you if you look at the tenses here, he says, if you being evil, if you know how to continually give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father continually give you the gift of the Holy Spirit as you ask? This isn't a one-time deal, guys. This is a continual process. As we go to him, God, I, I'm overwhelmed. God, I don't know what to do in this circumstance. God, I'm fearful. Lord, I feel alone right now. I don't know how to handle. He is the one, as we do that, that will give us what Jesus referred to, who Jesus referred to as the comforter, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside our lives in every and any circumstance to empower us, to give us peace, to give us wonderful gifts. In James chapter 1, verse 17, James talks about, it. interesting, when the Apostle Paul talks about gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and through 14, I think, uh, he talks about that. The word there is charis. It's a Greek word that it means a grace. That's the same word for grace. There's a different word here. Uh, it, when he's talking about every good gift in James 117, he says every good gift and every perfect gift from, uh, is from above and comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shifting or shadow of turning. So the, the word gift here is the thing bestowed. All right. It's a whole different word. What it is literally saying is the one bestowing the gift as well as the gift itself are a result of who God is. It's not a result of who you are. He is light. He does not change. He does not operate in shadows. And he loves to give gifts perfectly suited to each of his children. James is saying that God doesn't change his posture towards his children as he bestows gifts upon our lives. You can block the blessing of God, but his will is to give good gifts. It's about who he is. It's about his grace. Yeah, he, he's saying, look, and how often people have, have shared with me, you know, I think God's mad at me. A Christian, folks, if you have trusted Christ, God will never, ever be mad at you again. His wrath has been rolled away. Now, we're going to talk about chastisement in a minute. That's a different thing. It's not because he's angry. He doesn't discipline his kids out of anger, but he does work. And he does use that. But he longs to bless you and I as any love, loving father would. He, that's, what he, that's who he is. But he loves you more deeply, more powerfully than any earthly parent ever could. So the question that I have for you is what gift are you longing for today? You're looking for friendship, perhaps lonesome. Do you long for a greater sense of being loved? You just need to know that God's with you. Do you need a friend? I want you to pay attention to the word ask as we go through this. That's what Jesus said when he said, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He promises you his friendship and he loves to guide his children into community with others. It's part of what we're about. We spend time in community. We spend time building one another up. We spend time digging into his word together. We spend time in fellowship with one another. Absolutely critical in being a healthy child of God. 
Do you need assurance of your heavenly father's love? Folks, you don't need to look any further than the cross if that's the case. He sent his only son, your brother, your bigger brother, to die for you. Do you feel alone as you go through trials? Do you need to know that God is for you? Ask for an extra sense of his presence. Often, if I've prayed with you, one of the things that I pray for often is that that people would have an extra sense of his presence, of his reassuring presence, to know that they're not walking through whatever that thing is alone. Very important. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see all the ways that he's working in your life. You need financial provision, healing, encouragement. Ask for the leading of the Holy Spirit in your circumstances. Ask God to provide you for you in, in whatever that specific need is. We call it prayer, by the way, but ask. Whatever gift you need from God today, his word promises us. I was looking at First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, a beautiful passage about what it is to ask of God when I'm in need, when I'm in lack. He says in First John five fourteen. now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, and we know, if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. The key, again, ask. In, in the, the letter that Jesus' brother James wrote, he said this, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do, by the way, you ask with carnal motives. And we're talking about that. You know, it's the old, remember the old Joni Mitchell song, if you're under 40, never mind. But I remember, you know, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? All that stuff. Uh, Those are carnal motives. But if we ask according to his will, he gives good gifts to his children. The third thing I want to talk about here is our Abba, our Father, loves us enough to bring correction critical in understanding the relationship that we have with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, we read the writer here saying, and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So, As we begin now to shift our focus to verse 17, where Paul begins to introduce the subject of suffering as a Christian, it's important to know that many, not not all, I I, want to be, I want to stress that, but many of the difficulties that we, and circumstances that we experience are things which God uses because we are his sons, we are his daughters. The, The result of that relationship being in place, because He is working in us, and we'll get to that uh, in the next couple of weeks when we talk about Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 8, 29 telling us that purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son. And folks, we don't naturally gravitate towards that. He's using things in our lives. Going on in Hebrews 12 and verse 7, he says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, all meaning all, 
then you're illegitimate and not sons. So the question occurs to me, is there such a thing as an illegitimate son or daughter? According to Hebrews 12, yes. According to Jesus in Matthew 15, quoting Isaiah 29, yes. Jesus says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. So yeah, there are. It's not our job, by the way, to try to sniff out those people. Because <laughs> he tells us too that, that it's not our job to, to separate the wheat from the weeds. It can look the same on the outside. What he's talking about is the motive and, and the, the ultimately the attitude of someone's heart. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians 11, Galatians 4. He talks about false brothers. But here, as we're looking in Hebrews 12 about sons and daughters, as we're talking about our father who chastises us, the writer goes on to illustrate the point of godly correction. What's it for? Hebrews 12, 9. Furthermore, we had, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, God, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. There's that concept of sanctification again. This is not a static walk. We are moving through this life. As we move through, God is allowing circumstances to come in that that pressure comes upon our life. And it happens to every single one of us. The question then becomes is how do I respond to that? Do I push back? Do I get angry? Do I want my own way? Yeah, sometimes. No. What I do is I say, Lord, I understand you're doing something here. Please reveal it. Do that conforming work. And you know, folks, I have boldly prayed in times past and then kind of backed up and thought, John, that was bold. But I've literally said, God, bring it. And the reason I say that, it's not some false pious statement. It's because I understand that God is working in me an eternal weight of glory. That's what God's word says. And that as he works that eternal weight of glory in me, that he is going to buffet me. He is going to see to it that the pressure comes and that it has the desired result in my life that he wants it to have. Serious stuff. I suffer. We suffer at times. He says, for indeed, in verse 10, for indeed, for a few days, our heavenly or our our earthly fathers chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our prophet. Keep in mind, this is for him to profit us. He has your best in his heart all the time. There's never an aspect where he's waiting with a two by four to whack you when you get out of line. If that is your mindset or you've had an aspect of that mindset, let it go. He's a loving father and he wants your best. Verse 11, he says, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful. Folks, I do not like having my teeth drilled at the dentist. <laughs> I would be, that, that'd be pretty wacky. But it's necessary, isn't it? Otherwise, you know, things are going to happen. The point is, it's, it's, it, nobody glories in pain. 
Nobody, I mean, I don't like it when there's pressure in my life. But I've also been learning as I walk with the Lord that that pressure is there for a purpose. That that pressure is there because he's working. I might not see what it is that he's doing in that moment. I think about these people in Afghanistan. They may not see what God's doing in this moment, but he hasn't forgotten one. And I'm not saying that that's a chastisement. I'm saying that that is a circumstance where people, their lives are on the line. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's true that God not only allows, but at times he engineers circumstances which are part of our sanctification as his children. Again, got to be really careful with that because there are times where it's not something that he's doing. There are times it's because, and we'll look at it next week, there are times, a lot of times, it's because we live on a fallen world. And that's it. But there are also those times where we recognize that God's chastising hand is upon us and he's growing us and he's working in us. Now to Romans eight seventeen. All of that for verse 16. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon wrote that God has placed eternity in our hearts. I love that. That we have eternity in our hearts. That there's more than this life. There is a, a, a hope that we have that when we escape the bonds of this earth, that we're going to be with him forever. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of hard circumstances, It's important that we hang on to the fact that we're joint heirs with Christ. What he's saying here, and I I posed the question last week, how is it that God links blessing with suffering, the blessing of being an heir of God? It's because you got to have it down in your own heart that you are going to suffer, that suffering is part of this life. But you got to realize that there's a purpose to it. You got to realize that God is working in us and that he'll use that. And if you're not secure in the fact that you're his son or his daughter, folks, you're going to be messed up. You're going to wrestle way more because that has to be in place. That, And I, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit has these things lined up in this passage for that reason. He says, you're a son, you're a daughter, and you're going to suffer, but glory is coming. Jesus suffered. We're partakers of that suffering. That's what's being said. Being a child of God, it's amazing that, that he says, look, there's an inheritance involved in that. I mean, if you have a will, then you, you've set it up for your kids to, you know, inherit your stuff or your bills or whatever. But in Luke chapter 18, we see a picture here, the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. And he's kind of stuck in his stuff. You know, he says, man, <laughs> I have been doing this stuff for years. God, Jesus is going to be so proud of me. He's going to, well, you know, you're just a wonderful shining model and all of that because he, he was very self-righteous. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He totally missed the point. Totally miss the point. Because inheritance is not a matter of doing. It's a matter of being. Of being in the right family. 
And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that being an heir is by virtue of the fact that God now, through the work of Christ, sees us as his own family. He truly does. This isn't just a doctrinal conception, gang. This is a reality in all of our lives. Put it on and wear it confidently that you are a daughter. You are a son. So in looking at this, and and as I mentioned last week, asking the question, how is it the suffering as a believer is tied to being God's child? And how is that connected to glory? Because those are the questions that are asked by verse 17. (laughs) I want to just share with you guys that there's something in me that truly that I want to believe that if I'm sincerely following Christ, if I'm fulfilling the great commandment, I'm walking in love towards those around me. I'm dying to self daily. I'm taking up my cross. I'm elevating others' needs above my own. I'm leading a life of commitment to God's ways and to his kingdom. That in that, everybody will like me. That's a lie. We live on a fallen planet. And yes, we want our lives to reflect the relationship we have with Christ. I don't get that list right. I'm as broken as you are in ways. And yet the notion that people will like us because we live well. And and God has called us to live well. He has given us what we need to live well, to live life above the cut. No longer tossed around by our circumstances, but understanding they're there for God's purposes. I can get into this whole self-deception that everybody's going to pat me on the head and tell me what a wonderful person I am. And that's just not the case. I'm going to share with you, this is a first-hand ground report that came out of Afghanistan in the middle of last week. And things have been changing and shifting, but I believe the core of this is still very true. The Taliban has a hit list of known Christians that are targeting, they are targeting to pursue and to kill. U.S. Embassy is defunct and there's no longer a safe place for believers to take refuge. Borders to neighboring countries are closed. Flights to and from have been halted with the exception of some private planes. People are fleeing into the mountains looking for asylum. They are fully reliant on God who is the only one who can and will protect them. The Taliban, this is horrible. The Taliban are going door to door taking women and children. The people must mark their house with an X if they have a girl over 12 years old, so that the Taliban can take them. If they find a young girl and the house was not marked, they will execute the entire family. If a married woman over 25 years old or older has been found, the Taliban promptly kill her husband, do whatever they want to her and sell her into sexual slavery. Husbands and fathers, as reported, husbands and fathers are giving their wives and daughters guns, told that when the Taliban come, they can choose to kill them or kill themselves. It's their choice. Folks, this is happening in real time right now. Right now, it's nighttime in Afghanistan. There's a tense quiet. I was uh, watching a guy from the Al Jazeera network yesterday giving an update. A tense quiet on the street because the Taliban is trying to conceal their actions. But the reports are still coming out. I, I read of a report last night of a woman, a Christian woman who was trying to get to the airport. And she said, all of these reports of get to the airport. And then they stopped saying, go to the airport. She said, I was trying to get there and I was beaten. And then the guy standing near me was shot in the head because he was arguing with the Taliban. 
as we look at these things. And of course, as I mentioned, I want to pray at the end of our service and we're going to talk about what we can do because there are things we can do. We're not all called to the mission field in these places. Some are. But that misses my point. However, you or I are not, that, that we're not there doesn't lessen the personal cost, the horrific impact that these circumstances and events have on those who are there. Here is my point. The reason that these brothers and sisters in Christ could even think about winning souls in such a hostile place, knowing that the cost to them might be their lives, the reason that they walk they, and they walked into this knowing there's great risk. We support uh, far-reaching ministries. There's stuff on the back table that they have a black ops thing where they know that when they walk onto the mission field that it might cost them everything. The reason that they can do this is because each one walks securely in their father's love. That has to be in place. If it weren't, then they would be serving a creed. They would be serving an idea. They would be serving some thing. But no, they're serving their father. They're serving the living God. And they know that their lives are in his hands, whether they're in a protected place or whether they're absolutely exposed. And many are absolutely exposed, Christians, non-Christians alike. But for those that know him, they know that, Their life is in their father's hands. And that's where strength can come. Also been thinking about this. Freedom from persecution on a global scale. That's the exception. It's not the rule. You look in the pages of the New Testament. You look in the pages of the Old Testament. You look at what Jesus said as he prophesied over Jerusalem saying, you've you've killed all the prophets I sent to you. Freedom from that is the exception. And this isn't a, this isn't a message that's weighted to give you guilt. Please don't. But it is weighted to give all of us understanding and perspective on the critical aspect of knowing that as I walk, that I walk confidently as a son of God, as a daughter of God. The landscape in America is shifting. You know that. We might not have the Taliban at our door, at least not yet. Uh, I, I shudder when I think of an entire nation hating the United States for what we've done. But there are malevolent forces mustering for battle here as I speak. We've never since the birth of our nation been at higher risk of losing our freedoms. And you got to know that you're a son, that you're a daughter, or you won't stand. Verse 18, for I consider... Sorry, I'm getting emotional. I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is Christianity. When he says consider, it's, it's, it's actually, it's an accounting term. It means to reckon, to weigh out. To, he, he's saying, I, I've weighed it out. Present sufferings, future glory. There's no comparison. I know where my life is headed. Paul talks about this. Um, let's see if we can find this here. He says in Second Corinthians, he says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. 
in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brothers, in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. That's the same guy that wrote this. He could say, because he's speaking from personal experience, that this glory will be revealed in us. I suffer because I want God's glory to be known. In Acts chapter 20, one of my absolute favorite passages, you've heard it from me before, but I'll say it again because God's word is powerful. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul with the elders from Ephesus had them meet him in a little place south of Ephesus called Miletus. And there he is with the elders, sort of having a a conference with them. And he says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. And that's exactly the attitude that these people that are going into Muslim countries have to have. They don't know. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and trouble, tribulations await me. And this is my goal. I am absolutely not there because <laughs> sometimes I, I I marvel at my own weakness. But he says, and none of these things move me. None of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Fast forward 10 years. Paul at the end of the line and I would love to take the time and just do a chronological study of what he went through in that 10 years because it was a lot. In 2 Timothy 4, the apostle's in chains. He's on death row at Mamertine Prison in Rome. I've been there, not a friendly place. A big round stone room where Peter was also held before he was executed. He knows the end is near for himself. He's about to be martyred under Nero. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He uses an Old Testament expression to say, My life is on the altar for God. The time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. It's what he said. I want to finish my race there in Acts chapter 20. Now, 10 years later, I've finished it. I've done it. By the grace of God, I've kept the faith. He says, finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all, also to all who have loved his appearing. Folks, that's you and I. That's us. So we've gone from what it is to be, to understand what it is to be God's child, to the necessity of understanding the nature of this father-child relationship. Because we will suffer. Maybe not like somebody in a foreign land. But suffering is part of this life. We will go through it. There are times when life just hurts. There are times where I've had periods in my life where it's like just walking through two feet of mud every day. But you got to know that God is faithful. you got to know that he loves you. you got to know that you're his son or his daughter in those times. 
realizing the only way that one could endure difficulties, which one endures as a Christian, whether it's in a hostile culture, foreign land, or in standing up living for Jesus in a godless, Christ-rejecting, increasingly hostile environment, such as we have here. It's growing. It's being secure in that relationship. Placing a higher value on it than my own personal comforts. Why? To To secure glory for my King. I want to see him glorified in my life, through my life. If I've got sin in my life, man, I want it out of there. I don't want the hindrance. If I've got things that, that God is using in my life to, to hone me, if he's using pain in my life, circumstances in my life, whatever it is, yeah, Lord, I don't say it lightly, but bring it. I want my life to shine for you because I want your glory to be seen in my life. Do I always get it right? No, but that's the goal. We have a crown of righteousness and a heavenly hope that awaits. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these words, suffering as your child, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would strengthen us in the inner man, the inner woman, in our heart of hearts, that you would grant us a spirit of boldness as we embrace increasingly difficult times, Lord, that we could walk in the fruit of your spirit, that we could walk in joy, that we could walk in love, that we could know, Lord, that it's about you, it's for you, that our lives, it's our desire that our lives shine. So we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, God, that Uh, You are in control. We lift up those in Afghanistan right now, Lord. We pray for those who are in extremely frightening circumstances, for those who have already been subjected to the horrible brutality of these Muslim extremists. We pray divine protection for them. We pray provision for them, Lord, that you would get them out. Pray for our nation, Lord. It should give our leaders the guts to stand up, to do the right thing. We commit ourselves afresh to you, Lord. We pray that our lives would shine for you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling within. In Jesus' name, amen.